0: Amen. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, one of the minor prophets. I don't think, uh, let's see, yeah, I preached through Zechariah before. This is the only second of the minor prophets that I've preached through. We're just going to go through the first six verses. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as we read this? from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So when we think of Jonah, um, we think of a fish story. And we think of it as a children's story. You know, it's a great fantastical mythological story, but it has good morals. But of course, it probably never really happened. But the historical book of 2 Kings tells us that Jonah was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II, and that he predicted the restoration of, of Israel that happened under Jeroboam II, and it was fulfilled according to his prediction. The verse in Second Kings 14:25 tells us that Jonah lived in Gath Heifer. Jesus refers to Jonas, Jonah as an actual person and the account of the great fish as an actual historical event. Skeptics enjoy telling us that man surviving in a fish is impossible but that's because they don't believe Jesus of creation, the author of DNA. Therefore, when the text tells us of a great fish that was prepared for this event, they can't believe it. Yet they will believe that we are here by an accident of DNA mutation. I think they may have more faith than I do the author of dna could certainly create a fish in which a man could survive you know that's probably one of the greatest evidences that uh, evolution can't can't happen is because dna is a four-letter language uh, a language made out of four letters that has the instruction manual for every living thing it's amazing it, it would, I think I've compared it to the possibility of it happening by accident would be like, uh, I don't know, a print shop blowing up and resulting in Wikipedia. Okay, It's just impossible. But if Jesus is the creator of DNA, of course he can make a fish any way he wants to make the fish for a man to survive it. Most prophetic books focus on the prophet's message. Uh, In fact, I think all of them do, except for this particular, particular book. The book of Jonah focuses on the prophet. And we can learn from his fallen nature about the tendencies of our own fallen nature. And we're going to see in the story how God uses hardship to teach us and to give us heaven's perspective. Most importantly... Jesus tells us that Jonah's experience was a foreshadow of his resurrection. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying. So Jonah is the Hebrew word for a dove. As the Holy Spirit is representative as a dove, we're going to see some things about Jonah's life that foreshadows Christ, both in contrast and in similarity. Jonah's father's name, Amittai in Hebrew, means stability and truth. God sent his word to Jonah. Now, we're not told how that word came to Jonah from God. In Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us that God spoke to the prophets in many times and many different ways. This was a call to God of God to, to be a prophet, to deliver the message of God, from God to the Ninevites. And though we're not told the method in which God spoke to Jonah, we can be sure Jonah knew it was from God and it was God who was calling him. Otherwise he wouldn't have fled. Verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was the capital of the world in that day. And God gave this imperative command to Jonah to go there and cry out against it. Historians tell us that at the time, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, basically the capital of the known world at the time. It had walls 100 foot high and 40 foot thick. You know, archaeologists have have found some of those walls. The prophet Nahum decried it in chapters 3, 1 through 4 and I'm going to just read name 3, 1 to 4, because it gives you a sense of the city of Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to their prey the crack of whip the rumble of the wheel galloping horses bounding chariots horsemen charging flashing sword and glittering spear hosts of slain heaps of course corpses dead bodies without end they stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute graceful and deadly charms who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms so there's a brief prophetic description from a prophet who lived about the same time. Later, we see that Jonah's message is a one-sentence message. Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He didn't announce the sins which the people were guilty of, like most of the prophets did. He left it to the conscience of each person. Perhaps he knew that declaring the sin of pride and brutality would stir resentment instead of conviction. We will also see that Jonah knew it was a message of mercy and grace because God did not want them to perish. If you wonder if God loves you, just consider the fact that God sent a prophet out of his land to this wicked, most wicked of cities um, that was notorious for their torture tactics. They were a brutal and evil people, but God loved them and didn't want them to perish. This is not the only time God had prophets warn nations outside of Israel of the need to repent. These nations didn't know of the gospel that would later be revealed, but then neither did Abraham or David fully understand the gospel. It was sufficient for them to repent of their sins and place their faith in God, who would later provide Jesus as an atonement for the sins of all who place their faith in him. Jonah going to the world capital foreshadowed God sending Jesus to deliver a message to mankind with the same message that Jonah would deliver. Repent. Now how would you feel if God told you to catch a plane, and fly to Beijing, go down the streets, and telling them to repent or perish. Kind of daunting, wouldn't it be? Well, that's how Jonah must have felt. In fact, he may have thought it was a death sentence. But later he declares he didn't want to go because he knew God was merciful and that they would repent. He may have feared that Nineveh would actually be used to fulfill the prophecy of Elijah who said, they would be used to judge Israel, and they did in 722 B.C. God ordered Jonah to go there. Now, that's unusual for prophets of that area. Most of them ministered within Israel or Judah, and some had short predictions of other nations' future, but they stayed in Israel when they gave their prophecy. God's telling Jonah to go to this huge city that's so wicked. And this tells us God cares about the wicked. Cities infested with evil aren't comfortable places to go. People are robbed, sometimes killed. It's because of that pain that comes from the wicked behavior that God wants to warn them of the consequences and give them a chance to repent and change their ways before he sends judgment. Today, in our own cities, cities like St. Louis, Baltimore, Chicago, and many more, there are bold preachers who proclaim the gospel on the streets of the need for repentance. They're modern-day Jonah's, and we need to pray for them. Verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. That verse started, but Jonah. Whenever in scripture you read, but God, you find God is about to act in some appropriate way, whether it's mercy, grace, conviction, or even judgment. But when you read, but man, it's usually followed by some failure to do what should be done. In this case, Jonah makes a run for it. He heads for a city, which is now uh, part of Spain, where the Mediterranean meets the Atlantic Ocean. Nineveh was east of Israel. So this was probably the farthest city he knew of away from Nineveh. One reason Jonah might have fled was that the Assyrians were great at psychological warfare. They would skin their captives alive to make their enemies fear them. They've been brutal to their enemies. But did he really think he could get away from God? As a prophet, he probably knew he could not escape the presence of God. Psalm 139:8 tells us that is not possible. It says, if we ascend into heaven, he's there. If we make our bed in the grave, he's there. Perhaps he thought if he was far enough away, maybe God would send somebody else. If God asked you to go to Turan and call out against the evil of that day, you'd probably expect to die a horrible death. And that may be what Jonah was thinking. He wanted to live. To obey God may, in his mind, been a painful death sentence. The things God asks of us are rarely so challenging. We're going to see how God revealed to Jonah his love for other people beside the Jews, but also his love and patience for Jonah and for us. There are ways to run from God other than traveling to a distant land. We run away most frequently in our minds. Busyness can be and often is our ship to Tarshish. We get so occupied with things to do that we don't open our Bible or be still enough in prayer to hear what he might speak to our hearts. That's the way our, our sinful nature keeps us in charge of our day and as we fulfill our, de, our desires When was the last time you stopped your activity and just got still before the Lord? Opened your Bible and said, God, speak to me, direct me. I want to hear from you. We can run from God without being aware that we are running from God. Even busying ourselves with good deeds can be running from his presence. If we're avoiding doing what we know God's leading us to do we can come up with all kinds of great justifications you know man is great at justifying himself our evil hearts and the subtle serpent work together to give us good unquotes reason to do something else we can even imagine something to be a sign from God when in the end it's really fleeing to Tarshish And that ends up being more costly than we could have imagined. I hope this morning that you are not running from God. I talked myself into trying to run from God when I was young. It put me in a foreign hospital where the only person who spoke English was a British missionary. God knows how to get our attention. And it's a lot less painful just to let him lead. It's more joyful too. It may not be easy, but it's always good. The passage says here that he paid the fare, but in Hebrew, the original language of the text, it says he paid her fare. So some Jewish exegetes believe that it means here that he paid the entire cost for the ship to go to Tarshish. The crew brought goods to trade or sell to earn some extra profit. The fare to Tarshish would have been many times more than the cost to go to Nineveh. And I think that tells us something. You can always be sure sin will cost you more than obeying God. As you flee from God's will, your shipmates will not be able to tell that you are a believer. They will have no clue who your God is for you'll be just like one of them. After all, How can you be a witness to them when you're fleeing from the God who you should be declaring? Verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. In verse three, we have, but Jonah. Now in verse four, we have, but the Lord. If God calls you and you run, He doesn't always stop you. He may give you another chance to obey, or he may not, but we are the ones who are losing out. Serving God is not only a privilege, but it's an adventure. Jesus can calm our storms, or he can send them to us. When God does intervene to send a storm our way, we often interpret it as a punishment but we should see it as grace saving us from our own stupidity how do storms come our way well sometimes the Lord causes illness that makes us be still the Lord may let your employer fire you and you have to search for God's direction maybe your spouse isn't speaking to you and you have to listen to God as to how to change your behavior Maybe your child starts using drugs, so you need to learn to intercede by going before the throne of God in prayer. Storms are often blessings in disguise. They may make us stop our busy routines and finally do what we've been avoiding. They cause us to realize that we're not in control and we can't deal with situations without divine direction. Did Jonah have free will to choose to disobey? Was he free to go to Tarshish? Here's Spurgeon's comments on the verse. He says, I can go to Tarshish if I want to. I paid the fare. I'm not a stowaway. Yet apologies for disobedience are mere refuges of lies. If you do a wrong thing in the rightest way in which can be done, it doesn't make it right. If you go contrary to the Lord's will, even though you do it in the most decent and perhaps in the most devout manner, it is nevertheless sinful. And it will bring you under condemnation. Verse five, Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Because they believed in the gods of families or the God of different regions of the earth, they each called out to the God of their particular area and they wanted Jonah to do the same. But it was Jonah's God who caused the storm. Jonah knew it. He could call out to God. How could he call out to God from the God from whom he's fleeing? I know a young man right now who's in Jonah's situation. He's fleeing from God. But the Lord sent a great calamity his way. And yet he's still trying to flee. Following God does not mean trials will not come your way, but it does mean he is with you through them. You can surrender to God's will, pray for the storm to cease, and you can know that you are heard. But while fleeing from God, you know your prayer won't be answered. That's because it's the love of God that sends the storm. It's the love of God that desires you to surrender to his will for that is the best thing for you both in the present and especially throughout eternity. To lighten the load so that the ship would not take on water they they threw their cargo that they hoped to make a profit on into the sea. When we disobey God it not only costs us a great deal but others lives are affected as well. When we selfishly run from God's will, it affects those people we are around and the people to whom we were sent. We rob them of the blessing we were meant to be for them. You remember God told Abraham his descendants would be a blessing to the world. Jonah was supposed to be a blessing not only to Nineveh, but he could have been a blessing to those on the boat. And we robbed them of that blessing that we were meant to be we may think we're the only ones who are affected by our sins in fact almost always that's the lie that the enemy tells us oh it's just you no one else is going to suffer from this but it always affects others we cannot be an island unto ourselves it's not possible this account reminds us of, of Jesus asleep in the boat during the storm Only Jesus was headed off to do God's will rather than to flee from it. Jesus was exhausted from doing the will of his father and was sleeping the sleep of the righteous. Jonah was exhausted from resisting God's will and sleeping the sleep of those who wrongfully think they have escaped God's will. Jesus was headed to the other side of the lake, which was Gentile territory. That resulted in the faith of his disciples increased. Increasing and many people, many Gentiles hearing the news. It also reminds us of the time that Paul was shipwrecked on Malta, which may have been in the same area as this storm. That storm also resulted in the salvation of souls. And Paul eventually went to Spain to spread the gospel to those who had not heard while Jonah was fleeing to the same region to keep from sharing with those who had not heard. Pastor David Guzik wrote the following regarding Jonah sleeping in the storm. He writes, The nature of Jonah's sleep is instructive and too much like the sleep of the careless Christian. Jonah slept in a place where he hoped no one would see him and disturb him, and sleeping Christians like to hide out among the church. Jonah slept in a place where he couldn't help with the work that needed to be done. Sleeping Christians stay away from the work of the Lord. Jonah slept while there was a prayer meeting on deck. Sleeping Christians don't like prayer meetings. Jonah slept and had no idea of the problems around him. Sleeping Christians don't know what's really going on. Jonah slept when he was in great danger. Sleeping Christians are in danger and don't even know it. Jonah slept while the heathen needed him. Sleeping Christians snooze on while the world needs their message and their testimony. We talk about Jesus, but you can talk in your sleep. We have a walk for Jesus, but you can walk in your sleep. We have a passion passion for Jesus. I just wept the the other day but you can cry in your sleep. We have joy and rejoice in Jesus, but you can laugh in your sleep. We think about Jesus all the time, but you can think while you're asleep. We call it dreaming. End of quote. So what does it mean for a Christian to be awake? The Apostle Paul wrote, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It was thought to be sung at baptisms during the early church. It means that you're a new creation. You believe every word of God is true. You know this world is perishing and that the kingdom of God is forever. You know that there's a heaven and a hell and you live accordingly with the fear of God restraining you from evil and the Holy Spirit empowering you to obey God. The spiritual is more real to you than this passing world. What we live for is in the unseen eternal realm for our Savior and Lord. Verse six, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. The pagan captain had truer theology than Jonah at the moment. He was right to say, call out to your God that we may not perish. God sends the storm to bring us to a place of calling out to him to acknowledge that he alone can save us. And we have a captain too. Joshua called him the commander of the army of the Lord and he calls out to us. What do you mean you sleeper? Arise and call out to me that I might save those around you who are perishing. Are we sleeping through our days? Or are we calling out to God to save those who might be perishing? It's strange that Jonah could sleep through that storm, but it's just as strange that so many are sleeping in our day. There is certainly a spiritual storm in our world today. It's becoming more and more obvious. Some Christians are sleeping through it instead of joining those on the deck who are praying. There are souls whom God has put on my heart, my heart, me personally, to pray for their salvation. Some are my relatives, some of your relatives. Some have just come to visit Jesus in the house and and I had a sense that I need to call out to God for them so that they not perish. I have a list of them that I pray for regularly. And sometimes I get to see the answer. I won't know what happened to the others till I'm home in heaven. Allow me to tell you of one to give you hope for those who seem to be hopeless. I had the opportunity to, to share with one lady quite a bit and she seemed to be um, really growing and learning and, and going away from the teaching she'd been brought up, which which was quite radical. And one day, she had just completely reverted to her old mindset, had given up on everything I'd taught her. And I met her in the parking lot and she let me have it. She told me how ignorant I was and how what I was teaching just put people in bondage and she was done with it and walked away. And it broke my heart. I wept for her, but she went on my prayer list. And years later, I had to go to this city office to pick up a paper related to church business. And she was the secretary behind the desk. And she came out from behind the desk and said she was so happy to to see me. And I went, Oh, really? (laughs) Wow, thank you, Lord. (laughs) She was about to move. In a few, next week, she'd be moving to another city. And she said it had been on her heart for the past year to tell me that she was sorry for what she said. She'd come back to Christ and she was going to a gospel-believing church. Answered a prayer. Life transformed from darkness to light. If you would have heard her that one day in the parking lot, you would have thought, no way, <laughs> she's a goner. But nothing is impossible with God. God. Don't give up on the people you are praying for. I share that to say that our captain pleads with us not to go through life sleeping, but instead intercede for the ones he puts on our hearts so that they do not perish. Sometimes you'll even get to see the results of those prayers in this life. Jonah had to die to himself to save the men on board the ship. And we have to Die to ourselves to take time in prayer for those or to share gospel with when given the opportunity. Call out to your God that they may not perish. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, commented on this passage. He wrote, How can you know that you are not asleep? Then what do you mean by a man's being really awake? I mean two of three things. I mean, first, his having a thorough consciousness of the reality of spiritual things. When I speak of a wakeful man, I mean of one who does not take the soul to be a fancy, nor heaven to be a fiction, nor hell to be a tale, but who acts among the sons of men as though they were the only substances and all other things a shadow. I want men of stern resolution, for no Christian is awake unless he steadfastly determines to serve his God, come fair or come foul. May we ever be awake by the graciousness of God. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you come and lead us in a closing song?